0: Well, good morning, Faith family. Uh, Great to to be here this morning with y'all as we worship together. Um, We're going to be in Mark chapter 5 this morning. Um, just kind of kind of walking through, we've jumped into this series called Life to Death, Death to Life. And, and there's a mixture and kind of a nuance, some, some creative license that we've, we've taken. And, and really what we're, we're wrestling with in this next three weeks or this four-week series that we're walking through is, is understanding the, the impact of what we would call the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the perfect God man who came to the earth and emptied himself and, and his, the, the life that he lived and the death that he died and the impact that that has on us, but, but really at the same time there 's this interesting mixture or marriage, if you will of of our lives, not the version of life we were hoping for, but the version of life we 're living how the reality of what Christ has done and is doing impacts the day-to-day reality of what God is doing in our lives, how we can understand when the Bible talks about that, that he's calling us to, to take up our cross and follow him, to die to ourselves, and that life is found in Christ. We really want to kind of unfold that as we're able to understand what, what the trustworthiness and the reliability of, of who Christ is. But all, honestly, we also want to locate the, the truth of the gospel right now, uh, how you're living, where you're living, where I'm living, the very things that we're thinking and feeling, the very aspects of our lives are the, the material that the Lord is using to generate a deeper intimacy with him. And so when we think about life to death and death to life, we're thinking about the impact of who Jesus is and in his life, death, burial and resurrection and how that practically affects everything we think, feel, and do. So we live in a world that's filled with people who love to give advice. Some of the advice is good. Some of the advice, eh, not so good and kind of discarded. But the question that I think faces us this morning is, how do you know? How do you know whether the advice is good advice or bad advice? Well, you don't know fully until you actually are in that moment where you have to road test the specific advice that you've been given. An example that happened for me, when I was my junior year in high school, feels like forever ago, uh, I went on a a month-long sea kayaking trip in Alaska with a group called Knowles, National Outdoor Leadership School. What we did is we made our way down into Prince William Sound, and uh, kayaked for an entire month, no showers, no nothing. I smelled like roses, it was awesome. Uh, and, and sleeping on the beach and kayaking, and we made our way down to the Gulf of Alaska and back in the context of 30 days of kayaking. It was awesome, it was a great experience. But on day one, they start to give you advice on how to handle specific situations that you might encounter, i.e. how to deal with bears. They give everyone bear spray. It's like cayenne pepper. And the joke was, we'll just spray it on yourself so you taste better when they eat you. But uh, that was one of the things is if you see a bear coming for you, you got to be prepared. So when you go to the restroom, it wasn't a restroom, but I'm not going to go into that. When, when you, when you, whatever, wherever you're at, you want to take this bear mace with you. But there was other advice depending on the type of bear that you encountered. Black bear, here's what you need to do. You want to make yourself as big as possible, make as much noise as possible, because in their fight or flight, they usually don't want to fight, and so they they run away. Grizzly bear, on the other hand, apparently you're supposed to play dead. So the less that you fight or look big, the less you're going to incite them coming and wanting to maul or eat you. And then through the course of the rest of the time together during that month, what they would do is they would read stories and the book that they were reading as we were walking through it was called Bear Attacks. <laughs> it wasn't really that helpful. So we thought, okay, well, that's great advice. We'll be as prepared as we can be. Finally, halfway through the trip, I was fishing on the Gulf of Alaska off a kayak and I caught the, kind of one of the first biggest fish that I ever caught. It was a halibut, it was awesome, I was so excited made my way back to camp and I started cooking the fish. The process of cooking the fish, a bear comes over the knoll, and I'm supposed to remember all this advice, and I'm also supposed to be a wildlife biologist, because at that moment, I'm colorblind. Is it a brown bear? Is it a black bear? Is it grizzly? I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and so just instinctually, I was like, well, let's hope it's a black bear. I wasn't really thinking of that, so I'm banging pots and screaming and yelling all over the place, and thankfully, the bear decided to turn around and tuck tail and and run, which I was incredibly grateful for in that moment, so that advice worked. Had it been different, who knows what would have happened if, if that bear was not the color that I thought it was and ended up doing something that would not have led me here today. So I I think about that and I think about all that advice and the things that we're inundated with on a regular basis and, and we don't know whether the advice that we're given really plays out, really is helpful until we're in that moment where we're hoping that the things that we've been told and the information that we've been given is actually helpful in the context of the actual version of life we're living. Enter in Mark chapter 5. So the backdrop of Mark chapter 5 is Mark chapter 4. Shockingly, right? It's amazing how that works. But the backdrop really is, is fear. So Jesus has communicated to his disciples the context of the kingdom, and he's even identified faith. And he said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, amazing things will happen as you, you trust and you place your trust in the work that Christ is doing in your life, that, that it's not just faith in something that will happen, it's faith in a, a person, It's faith in the work of Christ. And then all of a sudden, in the context of those things, this big crowd comes along and and they decide to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. What happens? An enormous storm arises and Jesus is sleeping. They freak out. Because they are so certain that the storm is so significant that the very promise that Jesus gave them, that their faith in him was enough to give them confidence, whatever the circumstance, the circumstance was so big that it called into question the very truth and promise of God. So in the process of those things, they begin to say, don't you care? (laughs) Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? How frequently have we asked that very question, right? We've looked at our lives through the lenses of suffering, challenge, or circumstance that doesn't make sense. Confusion is is ripe, and we're encountering Christ, and we're asking that very question. Don't, don't, Don't you care? Doesn't my suffering or what I'm experiencing matter to you? Jesus awakes and then calms the storm. Now, fear is still present, But the fear has transitioned from the circumstances to the power of Christ himself. Who is this guy? They were filled with the fear and the reality of the power of Christ over circumstances and all of creation. It's incredible as they, they move. So they're experiencing fear as well. But the fear moves them towards a deeper understanding of the power of Christ over and above circumstances. And then they jump in on the other side of the boat. And what do they meet? They meet a demoniac, a garrison demoniac, this guy that's been possessed by demons. And, and Jesus begins to move and again heals this guy. You've heard the story maybe before. He, he cast the, this legion of demons into this herd of pigs. And what ends up happening in the context of those things? The very same response is given by those who are in the surrounding towns and areas. We got to get this guy out of here. He is trouble. So they would rather have a guy possessed by demons than have the power of Jesus realized in their town. That's how significant those things are. There's an impact of Jesus moving because it not only is it unsettling, but it changes what they're most familiar with. If I can contain and predict the life around me in a way that I'm able to manage, then I feel more comfortable than surrendering that to the power of Christ at work in all of those things because I'm uncertain what he's going to do next. And so this sense of following Jesus is seemingly very unpredictable, but worthy of our faith and trust. Mark chapter 5. After this healing of this man uh, with the demon and this desire for all of the village to just get rid of Jesus and have him move on, he begins to move. And he, he, uh, verse 21 is where we're gonna start. And, and here's what it says. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, so he was going back, a great crowd gathered around him and was beside the sea. Then came out the rulers of the synagogue Jarius by name, and seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports that Jesus, about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who had said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And he had entered and he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where she, where the child was. Taking her by the hands, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know of this, And then he told her, then he told them to give her something to eat. Remarkable marriage of stories. Two people living utterly separate lives come on a collision course to Jesus. And the interesting part of the story is it all happened in the same year. Twelve years previous to this event, a woman... Doing what a woman had done before, just living her life, doing her best, had felt like something was wrong, and she began to bleed. She did what any one of you or I would do. She sought advice, tried to figure out what she could do to fix the situation that she was in, a dilemma that was uninvited and unpredicted. Life had somehow shown up where her version didn't meet the version she was actually living. And so she decided to spend absolutely every dime she had to get this fixed. It was not just so serious because of the fact that she had some disease and and there was some element of her feeling weak on a daily basis. But for her, it didn't just mean a fear of the loss of her life. It meant that however long this went on, she lost all of her community. According to the religious law at the time, she was unclean. No one could be around her, and if they were around her or touched her, anybody that touched her would be unclean as well. So now you couple physical ailment with social isolation, and you can imagine how desperate she would become. The only thing that her sickness gave her was poverty. All of the physicians did the best that they could to figure out what was going on. And yet at the end of the day, there were no answers and only more problems. She was desperate for help. She had lived that way for 12 years. The same year she started bleeding was the same year this young girl was born. (laughs) The reality of life entering into the world, this girl was the apple of her parents' eye, I'm sure. They had grown up in a very religious home. He was a religious leader, the Bible tells us, and somebody who was in charge of helping orchestrate the worship service, prominent and significant in the context of his life. Year after year, as this little girl grew, she grew in a loving, excited home cared for by her mom and her dad. There were days of fun and excitement and playing as though she didn't have a care in the world. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why she was ill. Don't know if it was sickness or some tragic accident, but she was at the point of death. Jarius did what any dad would do. We've got to fix this. But here's the complicated part of his story. The religious elite at the time had considered Jesus a blasphemer. You don't go to him. He's a false teacher. You going to him is akin to saying that the religious institution is wrong. It's the interesting part about religion is religion only makes sense when life is manageable, <laughs> when you can figure it out and things are actually going okay. But when life doesn't seem to turn out the way that you and I had hoped, when when the version of life is not the version that we had hoped for, where do you go? Well. Jarius and this woman went to the feet of Jesus, went, went to him alone, whatever the cost might be. For her, the cost was that this was her only hope and it, it on it, it might not work. And the risk of her being accused of calling and, and allowing everyone else to be considered unclean, everybody that she had touched was at risk of carrying her disease or at least the social isolation associated with it but faith led her to the feet of jesus jarius unsure whether or not jesus could do what he's done in the past bows down at his feet let me give you a suggestion that i think this comes from the the central aspect of this text suffering is the great equalizer that as we look at our lives and the, the things around us, there are certainly things in life that are manageable, that we're able to predict and get through. But, but what happens when life intrudes? <laughs> when, when the very thing that you thought you had a hold of is lost? The diagnosis from a medical professional based on just a normal physical and You hear the word cancer and life is utterly and absolutely changed. You have a a kid that you've deeply loved and poured into in numerous ways, decides to go on a totally different tangent and walk away from what they said they once believed. You grieve over the death of a loved one that came unexpectedly and you had no time to prepare for. You worry about what the future holds with regards to your kids or there's some level of of illness that exists and you don't know where to go and you seek advice and you think medical professionals will give me all that I need and, and it doesn't matter whether you're totally on one side of the spectrum where you don't have a dime to your name or whether you've got all the money in the world. Suffering is the great equalizer creates this place where we're all in this realization that no matter how much we can think, we can fix the things around us, the only place to go is the feet of Jesus. The only reality of that which is able to speak in the midst of a broken creation is Christ himself, that there's a sense in which all of the details of this event, if we just look at it in terms of chronology, would feel like nothing makes sense in the moment The disciples don't even understand it, right? Jesus says, who touched me? And they're like, dude, you're surrounded by people. What do you mean who touched you? Everyone touched you. And he's like, no, let me just communicate to you that there was someone who came to me in faith, knowing that somehow in some way, I had the ability to affect change in her life. She pushed through the crowd to be able to just Not even get a hearing with Jesus, but just to get close enough to touch him. Let me give you something that I want us to consider this morning is that Jesus is surrounded by people who all have a mass amount of brokenness in their own lives. We don't know what, but we realize that he's surrounded by sinful people. (laughs) There's every single one of the crowd that's following Christ has their own level of journey that they're taking. They're following Jesus for a reason. They're wondering if he has something to say to them. There's some brokenness and sin in their own life. Jesus could have at that moment just washed his hand over the entire crowd and fixed every single problem that they didn't even know that they had. And yet he doesn't. Why? It's an interesting dilemma when we think about those things because we so often think about Jesus being followed by the crowds, but healing the one. Like you get this visible reality of what Christ does that even through the midst of the crowd, he sees the one, the one coming to Christ in faith, the one desiring to be in this understanding and this knowledge and this hope that Jesus is their last hope. And he addresses the one. He's on his way to do something else, right? He's on his way to heal Jarius' daughter. Hopefully, before the world would say, it's too late, God, you got to get there before she dies. Because if she dies, there's nothing you can do. It's too late. And I wonder if many of us have felt that in the context of our lives. Things are too far gone. It's just, it's too late. Jesus can't do what I need him to do, or he's moved on. I love the part of this story as Mark lays it out because it's a. I think it's a truth about the reality that Jesus never feels interrupted. There's not a moment where somehow the risen Christ, the, the God of the universe is too busy for your pleas. See, interruptions are often Appointments. Interruptions are often appointments. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's walking through this gospel truth, the mentality of Jesus caring about the needs and the uniquenesses of what every single person carries in the context of their life. He's interrupted on his way to do something else as the world would see it. But he sees it as an appointment, a reality that in some way The needs of those who are pressing in aren't too much. God's not too busy. He doesn't have a different plan, but he longs to hear from those who respond to him in faith. He longs to hear from those who respond to him in faith. He is attentive to each and every single one of us as we press through the crowd. I love this woman. I love what she brings when Jesus talks about in the chapter before that all you have to have is the faith of a mustard seed, that what you get is this example of this woman who is impoverished because of a disease, socially isolated, been hurting chronically for 12 years. She is without hope in this world except for Christ. I love what happens in this story because Christ doesn't offer her advice. He offers her himself. He draws her out of hiding and gives her a title that she has probably not heard uttered on the lips of people for decades. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your disease is healed. Which disease? The hemorrhaging? The social isolation? the chronic struggles to find hope in a world that is fundamentally broken? Yes. Yes. Daughter. (laughs) Through the context of a relationship with Christ, through the utter just act of faith, Jesus enters into her life in such a way that she is now experiencing a wholeness, which is, I think the term the Bible uses, your faith has made you well. I think the term actually is, your life has been made whole. (laughs) That is incredible. That coming to Jesus, even with the smallest bit of faith, we find wholeness because we find life in Christ. We find him. Not necessarily some antidote to the challenges of the world. Where is this woman now? She was healed thousands of years ago. Well, she, she died, right? It was a miracle. It was a snapshot in time. But what it did is it entered into this place of intimacy with the reality of who Christ is that she has now been made whole and in this relationship with Christ where her life is lived for eternity. The healing in this moment for her time in this world was unique and important, but temporary. It didn't last forever. In the context of those things, what it did is it brought her to Christ. Interruptions are often appointments. Bonhoeffer says it this way. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans, sending us people with claims and petitions. It's a strange fact that Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and so urgent that they will not allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are doing God a service in this, but they are actually, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight paths. I wonder if we have the gospel mentality that I think is present here and the life of Christ and the impact of of what he does is there's not this sort of frustration. She's not scolded because she moved through the crowd and interrupted Jesus on a more urgent request. Jesus didn't feel interrupted. He knew that it was an appointment, that she mattered so much so that she was given value and significance and deemed a daughter. While he was still speaking, it says in verse 36, this happened. Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. <laughs> it didn't work. We didn't get there in time. Towards the stages of our life and the utter end of all things, we didn't end up getting what we wanted. Jesus is too late. That's been part of my own journey with Christ and a bit of my struggle with the purposefulness of Christ. Over a year and a half ago, I lost my mom. And in the process of those things, as throughout the years, once I became a Christian at the age of 16, uh, I had no idea whether or not she had fundamentally and fully placed her faith in Christ. I, I didn't know. Prayed, shared the truth of the gospel. It come to church numerous times as I had preached in Vermont and shared the truth of the gospel with her, even as Alzheimer's wrecked her Body and mind. She passed away December 27th of last year, the year before, and I have no idea where she stands with Jesus. None. I'm going to want to believe that Jesus could have spoken in that moment in the most significant way where she would, whether uttering in her words or in her heart, just coming to faith and trusting the perfect, sufficient work of Christ. And that would have been awesome, but I don't have that guarantee. And as I wrestle with this text, I wrestle with wondering the same thing that the crowd wondered. Was it too late? Were all my prayers uttered in vain? yet we walk through this text, we look in verse 36, overhearing what they said to the ruler of the synagogue, the leader of worship, that which planned the service to direct people to God, hears the words from Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man himself, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one else to follow him except for Peter, James, and John. And so they they got rid of all of the crowds, and he went in. And what they used to do back in the day is they used to hire professional mourners. So when there was a death, they would have this whole community and all these mourners that were professionally weeping and wailing during the time. Verse 39, he says, why are you making all this commotion and weeping? Tile's not dead, but asleep. And here's their response. They laughed at him. I think the reality of the radical nature of Christ's work in the lives of people and the transformative work of of his his power at work in all of our lives to to the world around us seems, well, it seems a bit humorous. (laughs) that we could come to ourselves and say, hey, look, I know that I have struggled with this addiction for the last 20 years. And I know that maybe I have this anger problem and maybe I I have all of these things and and I've been given advice and I'm trying to manage my life in these ways. But then we come and we, we, we find ourselves at the feet of Christ and he begins to do this utter work and development in our lives. And and we tell people, I'm not the person that I used to be, not because I've figured out how to live life, but because I met Jesus. And because Jesus has this power to work in my life in such a way that the man that I was years ago is not the man that I am now, not so that you can see me as someone who is significant and has all of this power and prestige. No, because of Jesus. I just want to tell you about what Jesus did in my life. And in the midst of that reality, It's hard for the world to look on the outset and say, that's crazy. It doesn't make sense. There is no way that that can be true. And yet, here it is. Jesus continues to work. He put them all outside except for the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went where the child was, taking her by the hand, says Talitha Kumi. Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately, she got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. Again, we talked about the time frame. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Strictly charged them to say, uh, that they should say no one to anything. Strictly charged them that no one should know of this. And then look at this. Told them to give her something to eat. Like that. It's remarkable that the story ends with Jesus just caring not that this girl had just been risen from the dead and is awake again, but she's hungry. That the unique and utter provision of Christ to see the very practical needs of his people is amazing the very things that you utter in prayer and that I've uttered in prayer, asking God to do the very things that I want him to do based on what I think is best. He nourishes me with himself and then the practical provision that the daily needs are met in Christ. When we think about this sermon series, we're talking about life to death and death to life. And here's my suggestion to you this morning, that in life, there's death, and in death, there's life, But only in Christ is there hope for both. Only in Christ. No matter what you and I find ourselves uh, going through, whatever journey we find ourselves on, the commission and the call of the scriptures is however desperate and desolate it feels in your life, Christ is the source of your hope and the sufficiency of your life. Whether faith is desperate or whether it's certain, Christ is acting. You see, what what happens in this woman's life is she comes and seeks to remain hidden and just touch him and then run away and and hope that everything gets fixed, but he draws her out and makes her whole again. You, You don't know how fragile her faith might be at the moment, but the indication of the text is that there's just not a certainty that she brings to the table. She's desperate, and that's all she's got left. Her sickness has made her impoverished. She has nothing to her name, likely no friends. Family has disconnected from her. She's alone and lost and broke. And in the desperateness of her faith, she comes to Jesus. She finds wholeness. So let me suggest to you this morning that it's not about the quality of your face or the quantity of your face, but it's the fact that the faith that you have is present. (laughs) that somehow deep inside the faith that you have that Jesus Christ is the only source of your hope and mine is where he draws us to himself again and again. So the question changes, I think, as I conclude this morning. When we look at both of these individuals, we get the question of, what are you doing? God, how could you allow this to happen? Then I think what happens next is the question changes from what's going on to what's next. God, what possibly are you going to do with the reality of the healing that you've done in my life and that you've made me whole? You've given me back my daughter. You've given me back my life. You've allowed me intimacy. You've called me your kid. What possibly is next? The pages of the scripture record this story the the testimony of God's work in their life. Here's what we don't get where are they 20 years later? I would imagine, and again, imagine that if they were sharing their story with you and I this morning, they would be telling you about how difficult it was without Jesus. And then when they found Jesus, everything had changed where the source and the only source of their hope was him and him alone. And that's not just their story. I think it's ours. (laughs) If you've met Christ... You've met the only source of your hope. It was when the man, known as Bill W., came to an end of himself at the bottom of a bottle and found God waiting there to reveal the next step that the AA movement was born to transform the lives of millions. It was when Cassandra Ma took her own experience of injustice and asked, what's next? that her suffering at the hand of evil was transformed into a ministry called Reclaim 13, a ministry that recu- rescues victims of human trafficking. This is why the Coptic Christian church in Egypt seems to be growing stronger, the more it's attacked by terror. This is why, while languishing in prison at the hands of evil, Ong Su Su Kyi became a woman able to free the spirit of the Burmese nation. Suffering, as this author puts it, can certainly leave behind shattered people, but history shows that a struggle with evil, surrender to God, can shape saints. In life, there's death, and in death, there's life, yet only in Christ do we find true and real hope. Would you pray with me?